So would you mind introducing yourself for the audience, please? Yeah, um, my name is Linda Mann. I'm a realist still life painter. I have been doing that for about 30 years now, really. I'm largely self-taught, um, though I've taken many classes along the way. When I started painting, it was very difficult to find instruction in the classical techniques that I was interested in. So I ended up pouring through very old books and trying to figure out what exactly, how I could translate that into modern materials and methods. Um, I discovered Instagram, I guess about three years ago, which made a huge difference to me because I've been working you know, by myself for so long and suddenly there's this whole world of, of other artists out there. So that's been a lot of fun for me. Um, my work's in a couple galleries in the US and let's see, well, that's probably enough for now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice to meet you, Linda. I was looking through your profile earlier and you do a lot of reels. Um, which is mainly reels and is that in a way because I like that that you're showing your painting process you're showing the subject and you're giving tips as well did you always make reels or is that a recent thing well actually I didn't make them at first and it was actually suggested to me by an Instagram by a coach saying that you know reels were doing really well on Instagram and at that point I was interested in getting more followers and getting more action so I thought well I'll try the reels but it ends up you end up having to be a movie maker which isn't something I really want to be spending my time on you know because it's a skill you know to be able to film yourself while you're working and you know I work so slowly it's not exactly exciting so it took a little bit of work, but I did find that through the reels, I um, ended up giving advice to people more than I had really intended that people seemed to really respond to that, you know, little tips about how I do what I'm doing. So I just been doing that because it's been working. So I guess one day I'll go back to just showing pretty pictures. Yeah. I mean, you've been very successful on, on uh, your Instagram as well. And I think that thing of, where you do it, where you're giving those little bits of tips as well, that people see it come up. Because, and this is what this podcast is about in a way, it's about understanding, you know, what artists do, um, you know. Yeah, because, you know, you see a painting like mine, which is very detailed, and it's easy to think, well, you just do it. But there are many, many, many steps. I mean, it takes me seven months to complete a painting, and there are so many steps. And I think if people can see that you do, you know, you set this, you set it up and then you do a drawing and then you do a study and then you do an underpainting and then you do glazes, you know, all the layers. It's not so mysterious anymore. And I think that makes people excited, like they could do that. Absolutely, absolutely. And when you're making them, do you, and I make some reels, not many, and what I'll tend to do is sort of be painting and then I'll film a bit of me doing a bit of palette knife work and then, little bit of me doing that and sort of put it all together. Are you, as you're making them, actually sort of painting or are you sort of saying, I'm going to make a movie here? To be perfectly honest, when I'm really painting, I'm totally yeah. focused. And I, I can't be bothered with thinking about how my hand looks. And it'd be great if I had someone behind me who could just like film me and edit out all the like many hours of boring stuff. But since I have to do it myself, I really have to stage it. I really have to say, I mean, it's really me painting, but it's something I thought about because if I only have, you know, two seconds for a clip, it has to be, you know, it has to be informative. So I've got to think about, you know, what 
breaststroke will that be that I film? So, you know, it's like, I don't want to say it's illusion. It is me painting, but I, I don't really understand how I could really do it in any other way. Yes. Yeah. Good. Um, and what are the kind of responses you get to your reels? Do you, do you get sort of people saying, oh, wow, that was really good. That really helped with this. You probably get more questions than responses. I get most of the people who follow me on Instagram, I think are artists. Um, and most of them, the comments I get, well, they're usually very complimentary, like, wow, I thought that was real. It looks so great. And how do you do this? And they're so beautiful, you know, just sort of very nice comments and very, you know, it's fun. And then there's a probably about, I guess, a quarter of them are people asking questions, you know, like what kind of glazing medium are you using? Or is it okay if I don't do a drawing first or, you know, tons and tons of questions. And I try to answer everybody. And but it takes a lot of takes a lot of time, but yeah. I try to I try to do you know do a good job of keeping up with people. But you know, if a reel does really well, like one of mine got like six million views a little wow. while back, and there are like a million comments, and it would take you all day. <laughs> yeah. You know, most of my reels aren't like that. You know, I don't get that many, but you can almost see how someone would have to have someone do their Instagram for them. Yes, absolutely. But of course that wouldn't work for me because it's personal. Yeah. Yeah. And often what happens with Instagram is um, posts as well as reels is you tend to sort of hover around an average, but then every now and then one will just go, whoa, you know, this massive, massive spike with one. And um, like you yeah, said, the, the um, a woman, I don't know if you know who Dina Brodsky is. No. She's an Instagram coach. She has a bazillion followers and she gives classes. And I took a class recently from her and she said that, Lately, it's very typical for someone you know, to get just sort of average, 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 and then viral, and then average, 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 and, you know, and then viral. So it's not constant at all. I haven't been able to top my, uh, no. but you can't really plan for it either because you say, well, no. I'll just do another one of those kind of reels. Yeah. And then you do another one of those kind of reels. It doesn't do that well. Yeah. It's it's funny. Um, and I mean, I've, I've sort of, because... Sometimes when you get, say, a six million posts, you think, well, this is it. You know, each one is going to get them. But we talked to someone um, in a previous episode and there's sort of an analogy about surfing, you know, where every kind of seventh wave is a big one. So yeah, it's kind of like all of that. these little waves coming in then every now and then. I'm, I had recently a painting. You know, paintings never seem like a static painting, never seem to go that high but I got no. you know, I think it was about 18,000 likes on it there's no rhyme or reason it's not that it's better than any of the others it just it I just, know and that drives me uh, crazy sometimes yeah. but yeah, the, the reel that did really well for me it actually I think had a little bit of information that people hadn't thought of before and just captured people's imagination for some reason I was talking about the quality of an edge whether it's a soft edge or a hard edge and why and for some reason like people thought I never thought of that before and that but you know there are only so many things like that you can come up with absolutely so. do you teach painting as well no well I've I've written a blog for about 25 years actually right. and they're very specific and I have pictures and I explain my technique and that's the closest I've come to teaching and people keep asking me to teach but I'm just afraid that it would take so long to prepare something that it would take me away from my painting yeah 
I imagine I will someday if someone else could figure it out for me. Yes. And I think um, particularly with how you paint and your style, but it is, you know, you can't do a two-hour workshop on it. It's no, exactly, because how far can you get <clears throat> yeah. in two hours? Yeah. So. Yeah, good. And Simon, do you have any questions? Yeah, well, with you just mentioning about the soft edge, I was wondering if for our viewers who may not have seen that reel, would you mind explaining that for them? Like what, what this observation and this insight that you've gleaned is about the reality of observation. Uh, sure. It's tempting when you're painting or you're drawing to you look at objects and you see they have an outline around them and you draw you know, a line around it. And the brain is such that you know, you're sort of drawn to edges. <clears throat> you want to distinguish between things. That's how we see the world. But if you paint everything with a very sharp edge on it, it actually doesn't look real. It, uh, especially with a round object, like let's say you're painting, I don't know, a stone that has a round edge. If you paint it with a very sharp edge, it almost looks like a cutout, like an oval that someone pasted on a painting. If you have a softer edge, it implies that the form continues beyond what you're actually seeing. So that's one kind of soft edge. Another would be if you're painting something in a shadow, you can't see details. If something's well lit, you can see details. If it's in the shadow, you can't. So if I paint something that's in a shadow, I'll make a very fuzzy edge on it. So you can't, because it wouldn't be like real vision if you painted a very sharp edge on something. And the other, oh, and also if there's something illuminated very brightly, like I painted a vase, a circular vase with a highlight right on the rim of the vase. And where the highlight hit, you could you could see that the light was radiating out, you know, how highlights sort of, you know, they glow. And if you paint a very soft edge at a highlight, that communicates that there's this light there. Whereas if you drew a very hard edge, it wouldn't look like light actually flowing out from that point. Um, if an object has a sharp edge, like a cube, I would tend to draw more definite line. And all this variation on edges really makes a difference in how you look at a painting. It, for one, it's variety, which is always nice. And the other is that it really communicates form. And, and that, was much, from, that was much more that I was able to say on a 20 second reel. So thank you. <laughs> so is it a combination of, you know, in, in, a, in a composition that some edges are hard and some are soft? Or is it generally that they're all soft or? I think it looks more dynamic to have yeah. a variety. Though, of course, I wouldn't do it randomly. It would have to make sense with the object. But if you have something that's very completely soft, at least in my kind of work, I mean, I realize if you're doing a landscape that's like a sunset, there aren't going to be hard edges. So I'm not talking about that. But in a realist still life, if it all looks soft, it would just, it wouldn't look very dynamic or interesting. There would be nothing for the eye to really uh, catch on to. But usually people's problem isn't making it too soft. Usually people's problem is making it too hard. Yeah. And it, can you give some examples of sort of hard edges? So you're giving some examples there of the, the bars and that kind of What thing. I might paint with a hard edge? Um, let's see, of all the things I paint. Something like a box, you know, that has, you know, hard edges or, there might be a pattern on something that I wanted. Oh, another thing I forgot to say is a hard edge will draw your eye in a different way. So if I have a, 
a focal point that's a vase that has um, a pattern on it, and I want that vase to be my focal point, I might put harder edges on the vase or, because the eye's drawn to contrast. So if I have a dark right next to a light and there's a sharp edge on it, your eye's gonna go right there. So it's a way to direct, whereas if something's very soft, it's easy to overlook it. Yeah, that's fascinating. So as you're making a, a composition, these things are really in mind. You know, you're not just sort of throwing things together randomly. You're no, putting it together, yeah. It's very considered. I spend a lot of time setting up my compositions. And since I work entirely from life, I like it to look perfect. But the thing is, it's not photorealism. It's not working from a photo. It's not, my paintings aren't exactly like, it can't be exactly like life. I'm making design decisions. Like if there's if there's an edge that's intersecting another edge and it looks confusing and I didn't catch that in my setup, I'll have to draw it differently so I can explain, oh no, that's part of something behind. That's not part of the object in front. Or if a color looks wrong, I'll have to change it. So what I do, I try very hard to make things look the way they look, but there's always the designer in the back saying, well, does it look good? Because the important thing is not that the vase looks like the vase. You know, the important thing is that it looks like a beautiful painting, you know, that it looks good. So, but I'm now, I'm sort of wandering away from your question, which was, I have to um, think about ahead of time, like the hard edges and the soft edges. Yes, so when I'm composing a picture, I mean a painting, when I'm done composing it, some part of my brain thinks, oh, it's finished now. You know, that was the hard part. You know, then I just have to paint it. You know, that's <laughs> I mean, it's entirely true, but it, emotionally it feels like that because yeah. yes, I do consider it all ahead of time. And occasionally I need to make changes. I'll think, oh, that, what was I thinking? You know, that angle looks wrong, even though I you know, spent so long trying to design it. You know, sometimes I'm wrong. So I'll have to make, excuse me, make changes, but I don't make a lot of changes. It's fascinating. I, I think it was Cezanne, someone was saying that Cezanne would spend like a whole day just moving his compositions, his still life compositions around, just looking for the right thing. Yeah. By, by the time he got to paint, it was often dark, so he can't <laughs> um, But that, that is so interesting around that idea of the painter and the still life, being a landscape painter, the composition's already there for us, you know, the, the subject right. matter. And of course, um, you, you know, you can move things around by moving to different angles, um, waiting for a certain clouds form to come across, or do what Constable and many landscape painters done there. They would actually edit out things. So there's a windmill here. Let's get rid of the windmill there and move it over there. So, yeah. so they're moving it around. But I find it fascinating in a way, and very similar to a portrait painter who's dressing someone in his robes or whatever, and, you know, certain makeup, a certain hairstyle. That that process is so much part of painting, and it is painting, isn't it? Because you're you're going to paint it, so you you composing it is part of it. It's fascinating. It is, and it's, 
it's very it's it's kind of a different part of your brain. The part of my brain that composes is very different from the part that is trying to get this thing to look like the other thing. You because know, I'll, I'll be painting furiously for like what five or six hours, whatever it is, and then I'll bring my painting in the house and I'm like cooking dinner and I'll go back and I'll look at it and then I'll think now then I'll start to analyze it. Very different part of my brain that thinks, oh well that maybe should be sharper there, or that maybe doesn't look so good there, or you really need to do this. I don't think when I'm painting, I actually don't turn on that part of my brain. It's like, I'm almost like a, I get in this place when I'm painting where I'm just trying to recreate what the light is doing. And I don't judge if it actually looks good until later. And it might be that I perfectly recreate what the light's doing, but it ends up not looking good and then you've got to get rid of it, which is always sad. Yeah. And when it comes to colour as well, um, you were saying about contrast earlier. And how about colour? When you're setting something up, is colour important? Are you looking for complementary relationships? Yeah, it's interesting you said that because it didn't used to be very important. Like if you had asked me a few years ago, I would have said that value was much more important mm -hmm. in my work you know, the contrast between light and dark and the patterns that it makes. But recently, I don't know why, I've started using color and I'm really enjoying it. I don't know if it's the influence of Instagram. I, I really don't know. But if you look at my more recent paintings, actually, I have one. You want me to show you? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how it'll look. This is my most... Wow. Oh, I saw this on your Instagram. Yeah. See, a lot of color. Yeah. yeah. And it's a very different way for me of working. And I haven't quite um, come up with any theories about mm. color or why I'm using the colors that I've, I've been using. I can see in there with the, with the vase that you have with those greens and stuff. I mean, a lot of the other colors that you've got, you know, around the background are sort of slightly muted slightly within a scale but then you've got that amazing kind of green and it your eyes go there immediately yeah, that's a clever thing with colors it's a totally different way to get a focal point and mm -hmm. it's a different way of designing a painting too because i find myself doing this almost at this point intuitively then i really think so much about it but you know, balancing those colors, like if there's this bright green there, I might have a muted green somewhere else, you know, to balance it. But like I said, the color thing is very new for me. And I've done, I actually have three vases like that. They're all different, but they all have that pattern. I got them all like as a, as a part of a set. So each of my last paintings has had that bright. So we'll see where it goes. And also I've been painting, um, jewelry and accessories lately which is I used to paint more like old mastery kind of things like you might see in a painting from a couple hundred years ago grapes you know, and, a bowl and yeah, I didn't do the grapes because they don't last long enough for me <laughs> but you know but now um the kind of things I'm picking to paint are a little different how do you pick them because that's another interesting part of it where where do you go where do you get them from well it depends. I mean, it might be, I always have my eye out for things. So I saw that vase and I bought it. So I stuck that vase on a table and I looked at it and I said, okay, 
what else does it need? And well, it needs a backdrop. And then there, I might have something in the studio. I mean, I've used my props over and over again. So I stick something behind it. And then I think, well, you know, it, it's a big thing. Maybe I need a small thing, or maybe I need something else with that color. And I just sort of start sticking things on the table and throw a light on it and start moving things around. Other times when I don't have a particular thing I want to paint, it's harder. I might just wander around my house. It's like, okay, what am I going to paint? And in a way, I used to think it didn't really matter what you painted because you can make a nice composition out of almost anything. But you need a hook. You need some way, you need something to be excited about. Mm -hmm. And it's not always the same kind of thing. You know, it might be the light. That might be the thing, or it might be the color of something, or it might be um, that I wanted something dramatically shadowed. So I'll put a spotlight and then I'll put a wall up to cast a shadow on something. And then I'll stick something in the shadow. It's hard to, it's hard to answer. I mean, nothing in my work is symbolic. I don't include things because they have particular symbolic meaning. That's never the case. I used to put a lot of little stones in my paintings because the lady who um, built my house in the 50s, uh, she was an artist and she worked with stones and she did sculptures with these little like river rocks. So there are a ton of them around my house and I would just use them in my, my paintings because they're convenient little colorful things. Mm -hmm. And people would always ask me, like, what do the stones mean? Like they must mean something. And I said, well, no. The stone sometimes, you know, it's just a stone. It's just <laughs> So when it comes to um, sort of selling your work and with galleries you work with, have you, have you noticed people um, liking particular things in still lives? You know, I, I sometimes paint in a very different style and way, um, floral paintings, a lot of some, some flowers in glasses, mm -hmm. poppies, things like that. And some flowers are always popular and seem to seem to sell. Are there any things in your still lives that you've seen that people kind of are really drawn to as collectors or yeah. viewers? I think well, recently I've painted, too bad I don't, I don't have an example with me, but I've painted some antique Japanese baskets, very intricate, woven mm. bamboo, yes, those took, took forever. People really want those. I mean, they love something about those baskets um the problem is is that one of those i painted as a commission so it was already sold and the other one i only painted because i wanted one so <laughs> but so i wasn't going to sell it when i made it but then i think well how can i spend six months working on this thing and then just keep it you know you've got a yeah. business too so so that's in a way, I prefer it when people are drawn to things that I'm not so drawn to, which happens a lot, actually. You know, people, you think this is like a great painting, and that's not the one people yeah. go to. It surprises me. It's strange. People do like glass. People are fascinated by glass, that you can actually paint it. And it's not actually that hard to paint glass, but it, you can't convince people of that. It's like... If you tell them just to paint what they see or paint what's behind it, it's just in their brain, it's still not working. So things with glass sell, the, the, the baskets. Um, 
And people are lately liking the color more, I find. That's interesting. But it's, again, it's that thing that people are drawn to it. Exactly. Because often with the color, you see from a distance if they're walking into a gallery, for example, a pop of color is kind of a, it's a light that they're kind of got drawn to. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Simon, do you have a question? Yeah, this may be slightly overly simplistic, but I'm really curious because I, I do still life drawing. I don't know if you can see in the background there. Oh, yeah, I do. I love doing portraiture. I love doing landscape. I love it all. I can't get enough of each one. How did you land on, on still life and, and why still life? Do you have any kind of background of where that came from and how you solidified your passion for that specific? I do. I think area. for me... I was actually doing portraiture for a while. I was pretty good at it. Um, not professionally, I mean, I was like at the, in the student stage. Mm. But I realized I didn't really want models in my, in my uh, studio and I didn't really want to go work somewhere else. So it was inconvenient. And there's something about still life that just really suits me. I'm a sort of quiet, introverted person. And to be able to set up something in my studio that I can study all by myself and control is very appealing to me. I love to be able to be in there by myself and know that it's gonna be there day from day. So it's like, I'm not painting grapes because the grapes aren't gonna be there. And that I can really, it's just fascinating me to study all these very intricate small details. And I think it will be hard to do that with either a landscape or with a portrait. There's just something personally comforting to me about this quiet little space that I've made to create these little bits of art. And, you know, they're very personal and they're very orderly and they can be whatever I want them to be. And that's very appealing to me. Hmm. I suppose if I could ask you a quick follow-up, it would be, how do you preserve the arrangements? Because I've seen that you've got cats uh, on your Instagram profile. I don't know if you still have them, and they do love batting at things, you know. They do. <laughs> no, uh, I have a separate studio. The um, architect who built my house, he built it in 1949. His wife was an artist; he was an architect, so he built her a studio. Mm. So I have the studio now, and it's about just a very short little walk from the front door, but it's its own building. So no cats. Goes <laughs> oh, so in there, you know, and whenever I let anybody in there, it's like you cannot walk here. Yeah, that's excellent. And I suppose you don't use natural light. It's all your own setup to control the lighting as well, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I do use um, mostly spotlights, but I typically like to have a little bit of daylight coming in as a, a contrast. And mm. the painting I just showed you, tell me if you want me to go grab it again, but I let in much more daylight than usual. So one part of the painting's got cool daylight, which casts warm shadows. And the other part has a warm spotlight, which casts cold blue shadows. So this one painting has both, which if you do it too much, it's kind of confusing, but I really liked it in this painting. So more and more daylight. Here in the Pacific Northwest, especially in the winter, it gets dark at about four o'clock, 4.30. So if I were to work exclusively from natural light, I would be very limited, except in the summer, of course, in the summer it's light. So I like, it's part of the control is having the um, the spotlight on it. 
plus there's a certain there's a drama you get from a spotlight that you will never get from natural light i mean natural light's very beautiful mm. but it's softer and it's cooler and it's not uh, punchy and i do like those punchy shadows mm. well when you factor in natural light is that a consideration when it takes seven months to complete a painting do you think i know this is going to shift because of you know how the year progresses the natural light will change yeah it is i did a painting recently and i realized as i was working on it i thought you know this doesn't look quite like i remembered that i wanted it to look and i went back and looked at a, a picture i'd taken of the setup you know when i'm done taking a uh, when i'm done designing it mm. i take little um, pictures on my phone so i can just study which one i like the most and i realized that the light had completely changed and i was I was sort of painting whatever the light was at present. And I had to make a conscious decision. Like, no, I'm going to go back to my inspiration. So I ended up having to paint things actually brighter, like summer light and not winter light, which is hard for me to do because my natural inclination is to paint just what's in front of me. Mm -hmm. So to have to paint something differently is hard. But also my, my natural light does come in through a north window. So it's fairly consistent. But yeah, when things take so long, you have to, um, even like the painting I just did, the natural light coming in the north of the, um, yeah, the north window, there was a wall that caught a little bit of sunlight that was actually lighting something up. And I didn't realize that when I took my picture. Mm. And then when I went to paint it three months later, I thought that light's not there anymore. And nothing I could do to make that light come back because it wasn't hitting the building in the same way and reflecting in. So I had to, you know, make it up. I mean, it existed once, but it looked good, so I created it. So you, I heard a couple of times saying how long these paintings take. How long does an average painting take? Six to seven months for a complicated one. Some of them, the drawing is extremely complex, like the one of the Japanese basket. Yeah. I mean, I have to draw every one of those little pieces of woven it was so hard to draw. So that took seven months. But if I have a painting that doesn't have anything complicated, like no complicated perspective, or it can maybe take four or five months. Mm. But I also don't work every day, so. And do you have multiple paintings on the go at once? I used to, but I found that my heart was really in one of them. Right. And once I get going on one, mm. I mean, I have three places in my studio where I can set up but it just wasn't working for me. I just I understand get excited that. about you, one. You're sort of totally involved in this this one thing. It's a sort of you have this relationship with it, and it's because if you're thinking about another one or two, that and I think because they are um, so intimate, and there's something about the still life as well, isn't it? So this intimate relationship. You, you it have. is very intimate. You know, I find I go to sleep at night, and like before I fall asleep. I'm painting in my mind. I mean, it's like, it's so much part of my, my life, you know, whatever's going on with that painting. So. And um, with it as well. So the, the process, do, do you, can you see a finishing point to it when you're say, say two thirds through, do you think, okay, I've got another third to do. It'll probably be done in a month. Or do you, just sort of doing it and there isn't this set just do it i mean 
the last one I was working on, um, a gallery was interested in getting it. So I had an idea that, well, I probably shouldn't take forever, but you know, it takes as long as it takes. I've never rushed. There's no way to rush it. You just, that's as long as it takes. And at some point you begin to know that eh, it's just about done. There's this feeling of inevitability about it. like, it sort of has congealed is not the right word, but it's sort of solidified into what it is at a certain point. And adding more would just take away the freshness. So you have to sort of learn also how to judge when, when something's actually done. And also I find I begin to get not interested in it as much. It's like, I'm done. So you start to detach in a way. From yeah, it's like I begin to sort of dream about well, what am I going to do next? And that seems more exciting. And that's pretty much when it's done. That's really interesting. And I, I can see this now in relation, say, to, to your Instagram with the reels, that because it's this journey, you've got always got sort of got plenty of content because there's so many different things going on within it. Um, you know, I, I paint and some, some of my, my better paintings I complete in 45 minutes an hour. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so you have I, a I lot of you have a yeah. lot of material for Instagram then, because you're yes, it. yeah. So it's 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 like that, and I mean some of the smaller gouache paintings, but I'm very much a, if I can be an ala prima painter and just and do do it all in one go and, and complete it. And I think it's interesting then in relation to content creation for Instagram. But I find it very challenging. Oh, it is, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, as you say, my paintings take so long. So I'm just yeah. starting one now. It's like, well, okay, what do I post on Instagram? I mean, yeah. okay, I can do a post on drawing because that's what I'm doing right now. Mm. But that's only so interesting to people and it doesn't have color. So it doesn't draw people in. Mm. So you end up reusing stuff too, which I've done. Yeah. You yeah. spend all this time working on these reels and they don't, mm. you know, they don't get shown to all your followers. No. So I found that by reposting some older things, more people get to see them, yeah. which is nice. Absolutely. And I guess with with your process as well, because you've got, you're mixing colours, you're drawing, you're grazing, you've got all of these different elements. So, you know, you can kind of move around the process. Like I was saying with reels earlier, I'm just, if I'm doing one, I'm just <laughs> doing this on the on the canvas. And, um, and so it is that thing that, you know, how you, how you sort of put it together. And just on that, whilst we're back on um, Instagram sort of production, mm -hmm. do you do, do you make something every day? Is it every other day or is it? I've been posting other? once a week for a couple of years okay. now. Yeah. Which is um, plenty for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it really takes, I mean, I know some people say they can just like throw a reel together in 20 minutes, but for me, it doesn't work out that way because no. if the if the footage isn't good, no one's going to want to see it. And then you've got to edit it. I mean, it really, unfortunately, I would much prefer to have a reel that was like a minute long where people could actually read what I'm doing and concentrate. But what works, unfortunately, on Instagram is just quick, 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 mm -hmm. like attention span just goes. Yeah. So you know, every clip is going to be like a second and a half, at the most two seconds, which sounds like nothing. But, and, you know, I do get comments, you know, it's too fast. 
you know, and I always write back, I'm sorry, I know it's fast. It's like, but it's a real, you know, then I direct people to my blog because then you can actually, yes. you know, concentrate. And I really sympathize with that because if you're a thinker, you don't want to be blasted with these quick images. Like it's not TikTok. And that's why I don't, I don't really like having to make my uh, reels so quick, but you know, they're not, they are what they are. You know, real is not a tutorial in no. the end. And if people are going to your blog as well, it's I think it's cross-pollination that they're seeing this, they want that more long form. Um, yeah. And I also try to put really long captions in. So if someone's interested, I, I always say, read the caption. I don't know. Probably most people don't read the captions. I'm a caption reader. But if you're really interested, you can, and also you can pause a reel. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. And it's strange, that kind of contrast and juxtaposition of your six-month long paintings <laughs> and 20-second reel. <laughs> I know. It's really like a reel isn't my personality. It's just, mm -hmm. it's a tool to get to con to, to be in communication with people. Yeah. So um, talking about your blog, um, what do you write? Have they done in sort of lessons or are you talking about reflections on your painting? It's pretty much exclusively my process of a painting. So you can follow my painting. You can, there's like a post on how I composed it and then challenges I find in drawing it or any changes I might make. I have, you know, pictures all along all the different layers I use. It's just explaining what I did and how I did it. And do you find that I enjoy writing um, quite a lot and I often sort of write about my work and, and enjoy writing about it. Do you enjoy it? Do you see that again, like with your still life setting it up and all of that? Do you see the writing about it and reflecting about it as, as parts of that? separate i like if you were to ask me to write like an artist statement or write something for a magazine i would not enjoy that because mm -hmm. i'm very particular and i want it to be perfect and i just put a lot of work into the, and it's a, a lot of work for me and a little bit anxiety providing but when i write in my in my blog it's originally it was just for me i didn't think anyone would actually read it so there was very low pressure and it actually helps me in my work. So I enjoy that part of it. So when, when there's no pressure and it's all about me, I enjoy it. But I wouldn't enjoy it so much if you asked me to write something for you. Yeah. yeah. So how, do, how does it help you with your work? Does it help you sort of understand what you're doing more? Well, sometimes, this is going to sound odd. I, I, it helps to be able to take my own advice sometimes. It's like if I'm telling people, you don't have to do it all at once. You know, painting is about making mistakes. You know, put any color, you have to put some color down. You won't know if it's the right color until you put the color next to it down. And you won't know if that's the right color until you put the color. So you've got to put something down and you know, put anything down. And the next thing you put down, you compare the first thing. So that takes a lot of the pressure off of like, oh my God, what color is that base? I have no idea. And I know I say, well, it doesn't matter. So if I read that, I, I sort of say it to myself, like, relax, Linda. <laughs> That's good. So you're sort of stepping outside of yourself in a way, but then 
listening to your own advice. Yeah, listening to my own advice. Good. Simon, do you want, do you want to ask a question? Well, this brings us on to an interesting section of the podcast usually, which is talking about colour. Can you tell us about what your palette is that you use? I've used pretty much the same palette for a long time. I've added a few colors to it recently because I've started using more colors. But you want me just to give you the list? Oh, please. Yeah. Okay. Lead white. That's the most important one. But recently I found a couple different kinds of lead white. So I'm experimenting because they're different. Um, some of them are stringier. Some of them are smoother you know there's i found a company that makes some really cool whites so rublev and um i've been experimenting with the different whites um naples yellow light naples yellow dark very important for me uh cadmium yellows ranging from lemon which i don't use very often to usually medium and dark cadmium orange cadmium red um alizarin crimson which i know some people say it's fugitive, but I really love it. So that's maybe I should be replacing that. But anyway, Lizarin. Cobalt blue, phthalo blue, ultramarine, viridian. Um, now we go on to some um, of the earth tones. Let's see, I'm just trying to picture my palette. What's next? A transparent yellow. Um, What's it called? Transparent yellow oxide, which is nice for glazing because it's like a, it's transparent. Um, I've just tried using yellow ochre. I don't use a lot of yellow ochre, even though it's classic, but I've tried to experiment with that. Uh, raw sienna, which I use a lot of. Um, burnt sienna, which I use a lot of. Um, let's see. Burnt umber, I've just started to use, though I don't use it a lot. Raw umber, I use a lot of. Um, what else? And then there are occasional colors that I might use, like um, Indian red, I might find useful for a certain painting and I might put it on. Or there might be, I might need like a quinacridone purple, which is very rare that I'll need that color. So that's not part of my usual palette. And I think I got all of them. Yeah, I think that's it. It's quite an extent, extensive palette. Yeah, and I'd like, even, even when I'm doing a little bit, I like to put everything down. I don't put big quantities down, but I find that if I'm painting, I don't want to stop and have to look for something. So I just do the whole. Yeah, and that brings me on to another interesting question there. As your painting is taking process a long time, are you covering your palette? Are things drying? Are you mixing the paint with, with anything? No, I just get rid of it every day. Oh, to you? Yep. Because uh -huh. it starts to, the paint starts to um, cure and yeah. it's not the same anymore. No. And I'm interested in the paint being as, um, the paint film being as reliable as possible. So yeah. I don't put a lot of paint down. So I don't end up wasting a lot. Yeah. But I do end up like scraping off, I guess, a couple teaspoons of paint mm -hmm. at the end of every day. But I figure I can, you know, afford that. Plus I hate messy palettes. So it's very orderly and, and neat. And then you go back in the next day, it's fresh. Well, also the laying down of the paint is kind of a, it's kind of a way into painting. It's very intimidating to start painting for me. I mean, just to get myself into the studio, it's always like, oh, okay. 
you know, how many things can I do to avoid going to the studio? Do the laundry, feed the cats. So finally, I'm in the studio. But sort of the transition between not painting and painting is that laying down of the paints. And it sort of calms me. It's like something I can do. It's always important when you're doing something like painting that's difficult, I think, is to start with something that you know you can do. And like putting your paint down is something you can definitely do. It's like doing sort of stretches before you go for a run or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or someone or a carpenter laying his tools out. It's yeah. to yeah. get you ready. When just talking about lead whites there, because technically we can't buy it here in the UK. Because, oh, you can't? No, because of the lead in it. Um, I've got some. You can get it for, for conservation uh, purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, you can sort of have to have a, a license to get it. In. Wow. But it's it's such a shame because, I mean, it is. It is I best. know. I mean, as long as you don't eat it, you're fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the, um, you know, a lot of the, the great portrait painters here, British portrait painters, landscape painters, who all, all used it. And it's disappeared out of the British or and European because it's a European Union thing that they banned them. Yeah, on. I worry about that. Yeah. And it, it really is a shame because nothing can come close to it. And, um, you know, you have lead white hues, which are normally some kind of titanium and, and zinc yeah. combination. They're very spongy, very strange. Paint. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's not, not the same. Um, have you ever used titanium or anything like that? Is, is it always lead white? I just, I use titanium for my studies. Um, mm. I do black and white and gray studies on tracing paper of all my compositions. And I just use it because it's, you know, it's cheaper and it doesn't have to look good, really. It's just, mm. it's a sketch. But that's the only time I've used it. Um, when I first started painting, you know, years ago, I think I probably used it. But yeah, it's been a lot. I, mean, I, wear, I wear gloves when I paint. And I never eat in the studio. And I'm not grinding paint. Mm. I'm not grinding. So it's really, it's quite safe. Yeah, yeah, it is quite safe. And um, again, like you say, if you, you're not eating it, and I think there was a sort of a panic here about um, and a lot of it's old, old history of kids because lead actually paint tastes sort of sweet. You know, it's got, I haven't tasted it myself, but um, it's sweet. And kids used to in the Victorian because they painted all of the walls um, with lead paint, and little flakes would come off of it. Yes, yeah, I know. In their mouths, and um, you know, I think it's that kind of fear or panic around that. But it's really such a shame because it's 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 a paint that behaves in a certain way, and you cannot replicate it. Could could you describe a little bit about lead white and why it's why it's so special? I'm still trying to figure out the differences between the three different kinds I've been using. Um, <clears throat> Some of them have a quality called stringiness, where it, it, it's just like what it sounds like. And it behaves differently on the paintbrush. And I'm not sure if I like it or not yet. Like if you want to put a touch down for a highlight, the paint like draws off of it a little bit. So it makes a different kind of mark. So I'm still figuring out what I like with that. But the thing with the, the other lead whites 
that are less stringy. It has a certain smoothness, um, a certain butteriness that I find that the titanium doesn't. It, it seems more, they're maybe not as bright white, the ones I'm using as the titanium is, but I don't really like that super, super bright white. Um, the most important thing about it is that it's gonna last. You know, it, it's, a, it's a very age old, proven, reliable um, layer for your painting. You know, it's not gonna be going anywhere. And I like to know that I've got that. But you know, it's been so long since I've painted with the other ones that I really don't know what the difference would be at this point. It, um, a lot about the, the kind of the, I think the density of the white. So, um, it, and in color terms, like titanium white is what you kind of call polar white. You know, it's absolutely yeah. sort of bright white. Whereas the lead, the lead ones seem to be on the on the warm, a slightly warmer kind of yeah, side. I think so. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's. Faster drying in many ways. So titanium white and linseed oil takes a long time to dry. Because I yeah. think the, the leads are, are a little bit quicker drying. So I think so. Um, and just to say as well for, for the listeners, um, lead white, the paint is made, how they would make the pigment is it stack loads of bits of lead metal together and then they put like manure on it, horse manure, and then pour vinegar over and something like that. What happens? It it kind of reacts with the lead and creates this white um, substance, which is then sort of scraped off and ground down into a pigment and mixed with, with oil. But wow, you know more than you know more than I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by by um, pigments and, and paints and stuff like that. But that's called the the stack process, so they stack it all up like like waffles, waffles, lead, like lead waffles, and then pour this vinegar and the manure, and they interact. Um, but it's it's fascinating stuff. It's been around it, for centuries. I know it surprised me when I began painting to realize that the pigments are all different. It's not like they're just all the same substance with a different color. They all have their own qualities. Yeah. You know, they're more transparent or they're more like I started using yellow ochre and it's like huge coloring strength, tiny yeah. bit. It colors everything. Or you try like cobalt blue and it barely colors anything at all. Yeah. So you really have to get to know each particular pigment and what it will do. Absolutely. And they are all different. People sometimes think that these things are, are uniform, but even in uh, grittiness, texture, the, the, the different sort of um, particles of pigments. And I like... Uh, an American paint company called Williamsburg. Oh yeah, I use them too. Yeah, and their their earth colors are brilliant because they really kind of um, match and go for for the specific um, qualities of each pigment. With a lot of paint manufacturers, you get it, and it, everything's the same consistency. You squeeze it out the tube, that is. But with Williamsburg, some of their range of earth colors. I think, I can't remember which one it was. I think it's slate, slate black or something like that. But you're mixing it on the pan and it's gritty. 
you know, but it still I, I works. I recently got, I guess it was Rublev or one of those more fancy uh, paint companies. And it was an earth tone. Maybe it was burnt sienna. And it was the same way. It's like totally yeah. different texture yeah. from the other ones. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's interesting and it, yeah. it behaves differently. So that was. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating that that whole range and that difference. And I do like it when paint manufacturers are kind of tuned into that. And like you say, it's a different way using it. Do you find with your colour palette as well that it's in a way if a guitar player for example an analogy who's had you know this guitar for kind of all of their life and they know it so well they know all of those different things and can create much more through it. Do you, do you find with your colour palette that you're so in tune with your colours that you the mixes come naturally is it do you think I do I do every now and then I think well maybe I should try some different colors or I'll see something on Instagram where someone's you know this mixing color reels you see oh they use this blue or this yellow to get a green but there's part of me that thinks no I don't want to I don't want to change because now when I'm painting I just go I mean there's there's current kind of thought in painting where you're actually thinking in words like how can I mix that color I think I'll put yellow and green. And there's another more common thing as you get more experience, which is you just go for it without words. And you know, like you've automatized so many bits of information and it speeds you up. So mm-hmm. I think if I were to change the palette, it would definitely slow me down. On the other hand, I don't like the idea of never changing and not using new things. So I have added some things in, but so it's a mix between comfortable and quick and not getting stuck in a rut yeah yeah and again it it becomes sort of intuitive but also second nature in a way when you're mixing i've talked before in this podcast i use a lot of like a primary palette where it's just red blue and yellow plus white but i will often mix up my red blue and yellow so sometimes depending on mood or what I'm trying to create the red is going to be say an Indian red the yellow is going to be um, a transparent oxide yellow and the blue could be a Payne's grey for example and then I'll change it up again and the blue is a cerulean blue and the yellow is cadmium yellow and, um, but you do red, like to, so red. you do like to mix it up then yeah yeah, yeah. but the, they're based on the prime sort of primary so it's a red, blue, and yellow. You know, the, the, I guess a typical red, blue, and yellow would be, say, or standard ultramarine blue, and let's say cadmium red or alizarin crimson, and cadmium yellow. But when I first started painting, I'd buy every colour, all of the greens, everything, because I didn't know. And then I learned that limited palette, you could sort of expand it. And once I got to know that limited palette really well, I then with all of those other tubes that I bought, <laughs> I started just swapping them all around. So it's always the red, blue, and the yellow, mm-hmm. but different types of red, blue, and yellow, just to sort of create different moods and, and stuff like that. So I do like that change. Yeah, very different from what I do. I find mm-hmm. sometimes it's like you can theoretically mix every color from the primaries, but every now and then you need an orange, let's say, that's really, really orange. Definitely. And you really need the cadmium orange for that. Yeah. Yes. 
I find with working with a limited palette like that, that even though you can't, and again, I'm not working in an observational way, so it's, right. you know, kind of free, but within that limited palette range, because all of the colours are related, they're all coming from the source, that source of those three, what you then tend to get in the painting this is this harmony. Now, if I'm working with, say, a raw sienna as my yellow, um, a burnt sienna as my red, and an ultra ultramarine blue. I'm not going to get a very strong orange secondary right. when I mix in there, but in relation to everything else on there, it's going to look orange. That's true. It will. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. <laughs> and I guess for me, I am. It's a little different because I'm trying to. Um, in many cases, replicate an actual color that I'm yeah. seeing. It's like that vase. It's like, I want that blue. <laughs> so, you know, pretty much had to be phthalo blue and, you know, cadmium, whatever it was. So I think it would be different for your kind of painting Yeah, to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mentioned before, I work mainly from, from memory and, you know, I'll go and make tiny little thumbnail sketches and literally just a few lines and then come back and use the composition as a sort of platform for abstraction in a way and, play, and playing with colours um, so that that actual colour isn't that important to me. However, in many ways it is because sometimes I, I want that colour blue that is just above the horizon, which is very different to the colour blue which is higher up in the sky and having seen it so many times I can visualize what that color is and now can kind of mix it in a sense so it's half based on that abstraction but a lot of it based on observation but not di direct observation so foreign to me <laughs> yeah. and that's the great thing about painting isn't it that there's all all of this yeah you know, yeah who were your influences? What inspired you to get started? And, you know, Actually, it was a very particular painter who got me started, who maybe you've never heard of. Um, Juan, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the painting. I can't remember the painting. But the painter is Juan Sanchez Cotan, Spanish still life painter from the 17th century. And, um, oh, it's still life with Quince cabbage melon and cucumber it's a um all of those vegetables hanging from strings in an arc against in a little cubby hole it's a very modern looking painting it's kind of shocking to think it was painted in the 17th century but i saw that and i thought wow that's i just that's what i wanted to do that beautiful forms so designed it wasn't like a bunch of grapes and fish and all these like classic kind of still lifes that you see that I found kind of boring but it was this very dramatic um modern composition and I just from that moment that's what I wanted to do and funny I look back at some of my paintings that I did when I first started and they were very much you know in that style so that's kind of what what got me going um, I've been an artist since I was a child, 
And when it came time to go to school, I was discouraged from going to art school. You know, I was encouraged to pick some profession that uh, I could earn some money at. So I chose industrial design. So that's what my degree is in, is in industrial design. And turned out I wasn't very good at industrial design. I didn't really like industrial design. And then I went into graphic design and fashion design. And it took me a while to get finally back to where I started, which is to be a painter. And now I can't even remember what your question was. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it, it was, yeah, it was, it, it, you answered it. So it was, okay. <laughs> um, it, you know, what inspired you, who inspired you and how did you start painting? When did okay. you start? Yeah, so, so you got it. Um, I think it's fascinating, those, those kind of moments, those paintings that sort of, capture that spark you know and really say you know this is what I want to do um do you I've looked a lot of um sort of French painting and Chardin and all of that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. you were saying about colour because Chardin doesn't have that much colour in there oh. occasional lobster or something like that which is a bit of colour um, and we were talking about colour earlier is what would you say that it is that you were really trying to capture, to draw people in, to, is it the composition, is it the color, is it the, the items? For me, for me, the most important thing is always the composition because it's not, my paintings, they're not a slice of life. They're very much designed. They're a, a design that I made and very specifically to lead your eye in a certain way and angles are there for a reason and colors are there for a reason. and very conscious of keeping your eye on the page and not leading it off the page and only having one focal, or maybe more, usually one focal point, one most important thing, or some people call it a hero, you know, a hero or a subject. So, is this happening to me again? I forgot what your question is. I'm rambling um, off. So <laughs> what is the, the most important part? What, oh. what, what are you trying to get viewers joining them? Right. So it is the composition. The color, color is like the fun bit, the emotional, exciting um, bit. But it has to be, for me, on a skeleton of structure. If it doesn't have, if it's just color, it doesn't appeal to me. It has to have... Um, order and design and intention to it. So you'll never see me do a bowl on a table. To me, that's not a composition. That's just the bowl on a table. You see a lot of this kind of things now, or a thing on a table. To me, it's not has to thing. It has to be the whole design and even like the whole two-dimensional design of it. So you're creating a set in like something that is yeah. So, to, so you're distinguishing a lot of, say you've got a kitchen table and there's a bowl on there and stuff. Someone says, I'm going to sort of paint that. It's not design, but it's sort of an observation of someone sort of doing an image of, but you are specifically going and you are designing that thing, giving it life. It doesn't have any other purpose in a way other than. Right. And it might be, it might be that I had thrown those things on the table, 
initially and something caught my eye about it, but then I will always change it and order it. And I don't mean there's anything wrong with seeing things on a table and painting if that's what you want to do. But for me, you know, just for me, it's not enough for a satisfying work of art. It would be more like a study for me. Simon? I'm curious about if uh, how your experience has been with galleries as far as uh, do you approach galleries do you seek them out do they seek you out or is it a bit of both and how's that been for you it's been a little slow actually uh, you know when I started really started um, sort of a push on my career and got on Instagram and really started thinking about this was during right when COVID was starting. So it was like things weren't happening so much. But the gallery that I'm most of my, more of my paintings in is in Jackson, Wyoming, Quint Cordaire Gallery. And they're people that I've actually known for years and they've admired my work for a long time. So it wasn't, it was very natural for my work to end up there. So I didn't really have to do a hard sell or to submit my work or any of that stuff. And more recently galleries, will find me on Instagram and might, you know, inquire. And that's how I got in touch with uh, another gallery I work with in California. Um, and I've done my share of submitting, you know, when I first, like three years ago, when I really started thinking about this, I had a whole list of galleries I was submitting to, but I didn't have a lot of luck. And I don't know if it was COVID or my work was very different. Because my, my still lives don't look like a lot of other still lives. And I don't know if they're, I want to say, some of the galleries seem to like work that's a little more edgy or a little more avant-garde or a little more strange. I don't know how to, how to put it exactly. And, my, and there are other galleries that tend to like very traditional things. And my work doesn't really fit exactly in either category. So it's been challenging for me to find a good home for my work. So that's sort of an ongoing project. Probably in a few months, I'll start putting out some feelers again. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, sorry, if you don't mind, I was, I was gonna ask about framing because that can be really important for how the, you know, the presentation of your work and how, how have you, I suppose, how have you kind of developed your understanding of finding the right frame for the piece and is that based on a relationship with a frame maker or just experience of what happens to the color with the different type of frame well when i um i think i mentioned when i first started painting my paintings were more influenced by that dutch spanish style then mm -hmm. i found those kind of frames worked really well with my paintings those very dark thick black with maybe some burnished gold, very simple frames. And they tended to work really well with my paintings. And I found a frame maker here in Seattle who does custom work and um, they do beautiful work and they're expensive. And it's not the kind of frame I would put on and then send it to a gallery. This would be a frame for a collector, you know, or for myself. Lately, I haven't framed any of my recent more colorful paintings lately. So I don't know if that frame will still work I mean I'll pretty much have to go and mm. and try some things I hadn't I know the gallery I just sent my last um of those colorful paintings to did frame 
my painting, but I haven't seen it yet. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Lovely. How does it work with, um, say, solo shows? Or do, do you sort of, when you finish the paintings, send it to the gallery? Because I guess if you were doing a solo show and the paintings take six months to put together, maybe every five years or so you would have a solo. How does that work? Well, I haven't had a solo show yet, so I don't know exactly how that would work. But the ones I have sent to the gallery so far have not, well, most of them have not been framed. And the gallery in California also makes frames. So they said, we'll put a frame on it. So that's great. If it were going to be a solo show, I imagine they would frame them all similarly. I don't know. Like I said, I haven't. I haven't experienced that yet, but I hate the idea of putting a frame on a painting that someone's just going to change. So you really don't want to spend a lot of money framing a piece. And then the collector is going to want to put a different frame on that looks good in their living room because then it's just a waste of money. On the other hand, it's sometimes nicer for a collector to see a painting with a frame on it at the gallery. And, and regarding solo shows like you say you, you haven't had one no but if you were to be planning one how long would it take you to put all of the paintings together for it long time you mean to get so say it's it'd probably be in a, a solo show if you were with 10 to 20 paintings I take... have a lot of paintings. Oh, you've got a lot of paintings. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of paintings. And I could borrow some back, uh, leave yes. from collectors. Um, I haven't tested that theory, but I've heard that one can borrow things. I think people are probably <laughs> happy to have, you know, their paintings on loan. So I could get my, I could definitely get my hands on 20 paintings. So if a gallery said, well, you've got a solo show. You know. I'm ready. Early next year, you you don't say, oh, well, you know, I've got to make 10 paintings and it's going to take no. me five years to do it. No. But of course, if I had a solo show, it would take me a long time to then um, get up enough inventory after that because, you yeah. know, two paintings a year, three paintings a year. Mm. The problem. Right. Well, I would like to know, because we try to give guests that opportunity to have our audience driven towards either shows or events or anything you want to promote. Do you have anywhere that you're exhibiting where you'd like anyone in your area or anyone who's able to make it to you to go and see your work and potentially purchase it? Well, if anyone's in Jackson, Wyoming skiing, they could certainly go to the Quint Cordaire Gallery and look at my things. Or in Burlingame, California, which is outside of San Francisco, at the Studio Shop Gallery, there's some of my work. Um, I don't have a, a formal show happening right now, so there's no place to really direct people to. It'd be great if people wanted to look on my blog, mm -hmm. which is lindaman.com, lindaman.blog. You can get to there from my website because um, there's a lot of information there that people find mm. interesting. And no, there's really nothing nothing happening right now. But aside from the your website, as far as online, is Instagram the best place to look for your work? Otherwise, it's normally Instagram for artists. But yeah, I mean, Instagram is fun because you can see the reels. 
and you can always get to my website from Instagram, but my website's, if you're really serious about looking at the, at the work, my website, lindaman.com is a great place to look. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Well, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I'm so happy to be able to have you on to talk to you. It was fun. Thank you so much for asking Thank me. You. Lovely to meet you.